This is CliffCentral.com. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law. Like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. I'm Gary Hertzberg and this is the Laws of Life on cliffcentral.com. Alongside me today, Lionel Makoko-Klela. Welcome, Lions. Dumela, Gary, and Dumela to our podcasters. And today, of course, we did. We have the greatest brilliant minds in the legal field. Um, um, I think today's show is going to be a... Intellectual orgy <laughs> Intellectual orgy Because we've got like The greatest The smartest guys In the law field yeah, coming in, Yeah in the fields They are top Top of the top of the range We got today Cream of the cream This is, this is what we do Lines in the last week or two The Gauteng Department of Health Has had it bad Real bad mm. the, the, you know, the, the tragedy is that Their staff were forced To sit on the floor Because the sheriff Of the court Rocked up with trucks to remove their desks, chairs, and computers. Can you believe that? It's quite amazing because during my uh, dissertation moment when I was actually doing my MBA, because my research was actually looking in the health aspect to see how total quality management can improve service delivery, it was quite shocking insofar as the litigation amounts that they were facing. And in most cases, in some uh, hospitals, they actually did not have uh, resources as a result of litigation processes. So the, this is just a very serious problem that is actually affecting People who are actually poor who cannot actually afford to go to a normal clinic where they actually have to pay something. Okay, well, let's hear what happened with the sheriff as well. A good point you make there, Lines. Mm. The sheriff of the court not only removed the furniture and computers and that, he went to FNB and he attached 14 of the department's FNB accounts and uh, thereby blocking the department's use of these bank accounts entirely, which is which is very sad. And uh, the reason <clears throat> for this mess is that uh, the department had not paid 33 million rand that it owes by court order to four children, only four children, who were brain damaged at birth by uh, provincial hospitals within the department's uh, hospitals. The attorney acting for these children got the absolute murin and decided to give the, the department a bloody nose, resulting in the department screaming, take me to hospital. Today's show is about medical negligence, and joining us in studio are the two specialists that Lionel mentioned. Uh, firstly, Johannesburg attorney, you know all about him because he advertises all over the place. It's Stephen Flowers of Monroe Flowers and for Mark. Attorneys. Attorneys, absolutely. <laughs> uh, Stephen and his firm are well known in medical negligence, personal injury cases with over 20 years of experience. A warm welcome to you, Stephen. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, Gary, and good afternoon to your listeners. Great to have you. Uh, your advertising budget <laughs> must be must be millions, but uh, that's cool. As long as you're delivering, uh, we're happy. Yeah. Joining you today is uh, Greg Whitaker. He's an actuary uh, with the company known as Algorithm Consultants and Actuaries, 
And you're going to hear about uh, from Greg that in medical malpractice claims, the actuaries are the ones that actually determine by mathematical calculations what a person's damages is going to be. Otherwise, it's really the courts have said it's basically a thumb suck. Uh, so Greg is literally, I mean, I know him personally, he is so clever. That he can even calculate next week's lot of numbers for you. Oh, certainly. I mean, actuarial scientists, they, they're like the smartest cream of the cream. Yeah. At the end of the show, Greg will give you the numbers for next week's lot. So stick around. <laughs> I think I'd love that. Yeah, Lionel thinks you've got more of a chance of the lotto operators posting you a check by mistake than actually winning the lot. How about 40 million? <laughs> yeah. Some of the questions lines that have been uh, asked today come from our collaborative partner Legal Talk SA on its Facebook page. Uh, they now have a membership of over 130,000 people. That's great. It, yeah. I mean, this partnership of ours is the collaboration, I like to call it. It's actually just growing every week. We seem to be getting more questions in pertaining uh, topics that relate to law. And that is what we want. We want to serve the communities and we want to ensure that they actually get the best of the best to actually offer them their answers. And that is why today we have the brains of brains in, in our studio to actually answer those questions. Our Facebook page, The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg. Have a look at it. Give us a like if you can. Our Twitter handle. Handle lines, you give that one out usually. Ed Don't mess it up, lines. Ed Hetzlaw, H E R T Z L A W. Okay, Stephen Flowers and Greg Whitaker, uh, gents, you're both in the medical negligence space. Uh, do you think that the removal of the department's furniture and attaching their bank accounts was the way to go to enforce payment? Stephen, you want to take that one? Um, yeah, if I can start with that. I think that what you've got to understand is that this was a last ditch attempt, this is a desperate attempt by the attorney acting on behalf of those particular plaintiffs that you mentioned. Because what happens is when the courts make an award, there is a judgment given or there is an agreement and it's made an order of court and it says pay X amount of money. So in this case, the MEC was ordered by the court to pay, uh, I forget the figure that you mentioned. Yeah, 33 million Th roughly. Okay, yeah. 30, th well, that was between the claimants Four, yeah, that, yeah. that was owing. So a total of 33 million was owing, and I don't know, three, there was three or four different judgments. Mm. And in the, they're supposed to pay immediately upon, you know, upon the judgment. But of course, one normally gives them a reasonable time with, within which to pay, um, a couple of weeks or so. And, um, Obviously, this didn't happen. I assume that the attorney and uh, who was dealing with the matters wrote to the Department um, of of Health and asked, you know, for 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 payment. Would have produced a copy of the court order, and nothing was forthcoming. And I don't know how long these had be, these judgments had been outstanding, but I, su I assume it was a fairly lengthy period of time. And and eventually, the attorney has no alternative. The only way to proceed forward, if 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 a debtor, in this case the MEC, is not paying is to get the sheriff to, to, to issue what we call a writ. And that writ is, is then, you give it to the sheriff, it's issued by the court and t taken to the sheriff, and the sheriff will go down there, and the sheriff must attach the goods of the debtor. And uh, when he attaches those, and, and, and there's two things you can do. You can either just attach the goods, or you can order him to attach and remove the goods, which is what appears to have been done in this case. And then those goods would then go and get sold on auction, and whatever's realised for that would go towards the debt. And and if the, and if there weren't enough movables to uh, um, 
to, for, satisfy, to satisfy the debt, the debt mm. um, then then they would go back and then they could go against the immovables. Although in in the case of the state, that's a it's a it's a problem. That's a different issue, which I don't think we need to go into. Mm. But what you've got to realize is that this was. A last ditch. Is it malicious? Is it spiteful? It's not spiteful at all because, you know, there's a judgment. There there are kids here in this case that that have been, um, I don't want to say harmed by the state, but there's been negligence. And as a result of that that negligence, these kids have suffered damages, which damages were determined by the court, awarded by the, there was an award made by the court. And uh, the health department must is must now pay that award. But do they have the money to pay it? Is 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 that the issue, or is it just is there kind of um, just negligence or non caring? What's going? You know why? Well, whether or not whether or not they have the money, I, I maybe Greg can answer that question. Mm. Uh, I can't. I you know what I can tell you is that I've been told that each hospital. Uh, provincial hospital, that is, that's what we're talking about here, mm. is responsible um, for payment of any judgments against them from their own budget. So each hospital gets given a budget for the year, however many millions or billions they get in a year, and whatever they've got to pay out of that, and that would include any judgments against them, has to be paid out of that hospital's budget. That's that's what I understand. Yeah, Jack Bloom, DA Gauteng, Shadow Health, MEC, said, we attempted negotiations with the department, but no response was forthcoming. So I think uh, even the DA gets involved in trying to sort these out. Yeah, well, you know, or Jack Jack Bloom is very he follows us very closely and uh, he knows all about it. I think you you know him quite well, Greg. Well, he's just given yeah. me quite a bit of information yeah, well, over the years, but uh, yeah, I don't know. What's going on? I mean, why can't they pay this? Well, as Stephen said, the the money j- comes out of the general budget. So, um the the Gauteng Department of Health's budget for uh, this, the current financial year is about 40.2 billion rand. Mm. So there's not, it, there's no sort of separate insurance fund or any provision that's made. It basically just comes out of your general, out of the general revenue. Okay. So they self-insure the, the department. Effectively, yes. And whatever comes out of this 42 billion is money less that can go towards healthcare. That's correct. How much of the 42 billion do you know of their budget is used to, to pay off litigation mm. claims? We don't. Um, we, we we know what their provisions are. So I mean, the, you know, um, if if you look at, well, I mean, we could look at the trend. What you know, what what's been happening over the last sort of six years. So, um, in in their financials for the year ending March 2011, the they had a contingent liability for medical legal claims of about 772 million rand. And then um, the the latest figure in in the March 2017 financial statements there. Contingent liability for medical legal claims is about eighteen point six billion rand. So, in a, so over the sorry, last eighteen billion must go towards past well, claims, and out of the forty-two billion that they've n- got to run the hospital, not necessarily. So that's the the the, the, the amount. What I understand, in the, the provision that they make is basically the value of the summonses that they receive. So a matter may not necessarily settle for uh, the summons amount. It could be could be more. It could be less. So mm. it's just. Um, it's just a broad indication of 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 the problem, but um, yeah. So look, I mean, if uh, hypothetically, if if the eighteen point six billion uh, claims were all, uh, all succeeded and were valid, then uh, that would have to come out of uh, general revenue. Yeah, it, I mean, it's rather tragic that uh, the the hospitals are suffering and they can't deliver. Generally, they can't deliver, and it's kind of a vicious cycle or circle, whatever you call it, because. They can't deliver. More babies are damaged and 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 hurt, and more people are 
are damaged and hurt because the department doesn't have the money to look after them. It's kind of quite simple, isn't it? That's what's going on here. Well, I think yeah. if I can just step yeah. in here, I don't think that that's quite true. Um, I think you've got to start at the beginning. And the beginning is is that a, a, a woman who's about to give birth pictures up at the hospital. Mm. Um, she's in labor. She comes to the hospital. Now, it's the, it's, it's, it's the job of the hospital to make sure that that labor goes smoothly, that that birth happens happens smoothly. Mm. We're not we're not talking here about operating theater. You know, we're not talking necessarily talking about operating theaters. We're not talking about somebody who's who's been in a car accident, who's come in mm. and who's uh, bleeding excessively from the head and got brain damage and has to be rushed off to theater immediately. Mm. Um, otherwise, they otherwise they're going to die or they're going to suffer some severe uh, long term trauma. This this is somebody who comes in and ostensibly. There is nothing wrong with the baby. When she comes to that hospital, that baby is fine. Because what we, what we are talking about here are cerebral palsy kids. Mm-hmm. And what you've got to remember is the cerebral palsy kids, where, where there is liability, there are lots of cases where things happen in utero um, that are not the fault of the doctor. They're not the fault of the, of, of the gynecologist or the obstetrician or the nurse or whoever. Um, and, 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 and babies come out, let's say, not normal. Uh, and that can be a congenital problem. It can be many other problems, which is nobody's fault. Now, in order to have a claim, there has to be negligence to start with. Mm-hmm. So it's you've got to remember it, that's that's your starting point. That means that somebody, be it a doctor or a nurse, didn't do what they should have done in the beginning, mm-hmm. and that is as a result of that, you've got you, you, you've you've got a child that is now cerebral palsy. So. What we've got is we've got negligence, which you have to prove. It's not something a child is born with cerebral palsy, pay them 20 million rand. It certainly mm. doesn't work like that. Mm. You've got to prove that somebody didn't do what they should have done. And as a result of them not doing it, that's what we call in law causation. So it's not just negligence in a vacuum. That negligence had to have caused a result. So in the, in the instance we're talking about, Somebody didn't do what they should have done. They were negligent in not doing what they should have done at the time. And as a result of that negligence, a child was born with cerebral palsy, which is now going to require lifelong care. So, if they had yeah, done what yeah, they should have done, yeah, sorry, yeah, I'm just yeah, if they had yeah. done what they should have done in the beginning, yeah. that child would have been born normal. Mm. Is there a common thread? Is there common negligence here? Why, why are there so many kids? That are being born this way with cerebral palsy. What is the problem? Well, I can only speak for my, yeah, from my experience, experience, you know, yeah. in cases that I've dealt with. And mo- most, most of the time, you will find that this, this occurs in the second stage of, of, of labor. Mm. So it, it, it occurs a couple of hours before the child is born. Now, what they should be doing is they should be monitoring children, for example. They, they, at the hospitals, they've got a monitor that they put on the mother, which, without getting too technical, it, it, it monitors the heartbeat of the baby. And if the heartbeat of the baby, um, drops below a certain point That should be a warning sign for example uh, And you can see it on the printout that comes That should be a warning sign To the doctor or nurse whoever's in charge At that, at that point in time It may just be, it may be a midwife um, That this baby Is now going into, what, into stress That the baby is now stressed And when the baby is stressed it means it's not getting enough oxygen To the brain mm-hmm. Because when it's in the mother It's still in utero The oxygen that it's getting is through the umbilical cord It's the blood supply so it's not breathing on its own yet. It's not yet born, and and these warning signs. That's why they have. That's why they have these um, graphs that they attach. And when the, when the doctor or the nurse sees these warning signs, they should take appropriate steps. And if that appropriate steps means 
that they need to take the, the, the woman to theater and do a cesarean, um, that can be set up generally within about a half an hour. Do they have the facilities in the smaller hospitals? The in, ones, the no, ones? in the smaller in the smaller hospitals, a lot a lot of them do not do cesarean operations. They don't mm. have the capability to so do. So they've it. got to move them. Is that? But they yeah. should they should recognise the signs early enough, and mm. they should and they should then make sure that they are transported to a bigger facility, mm. which then has the you know it it has the capability. Yes, there are cases, Gary, where. Things happen and nothing can be done about it. And, and, and with the best will of the world, the child is born cerebral palsy but it does, but, and, and everybody did what they could do. Mm. But there are many, many more cases where children could have been born normal and are not born normal because things were not done timelessly. Of the, of the many, many medical malpractice claims you handle, are most of them against government or when it comes to the kids that are born cerebral palsied or – are a lot of them against private uh, uh, facilities? I, w- I would say that there are more against government than against private f- facilities, mm. um, but certainly there are those. There, there are a fair amount that are against private facilities as well. Yeah, I'd also say that's that's a similar trend that we've seen. Um, most of the most of the cerebral palsy matters tend to be against the state, although there are there are a few private ones. Uh, I mean, there's, we all know this that. Uh, the Ghanese obstetricians are paying nearly a million rand per annum for medical risk insurance, which is crazy stuff. And uh, they just cannot survive. So a lot of them are, are getting out of the profession. And ultimately, unless you're really very, very wealthy, you're going to be forced to take your baby to a state hospital to, to, to be born. And uh, that's, that's a bit of a concern with all these claims against against the hospitals. Sorry, Gary, just yeah. to add to that, yeah. I think the issue uh, that the hospitals themselves are facing is the fact that they don't have adequate resources. In most cases, you'd find that they are doctors, but they don't have resources. And as a result, trying to actually save a life, and in, in some cases, they try to do the, the right thing uh, according to their ethics, but then only to find that at a later stage, there are some consequences of their decision-making. And this is where then the law and the ethics ca- uh, come, uh, come to play. Yeah. And the, re- the the reality of the matter is that if then somebody actually is um, is going to be suffering for the rest of, the, of their lives as a result of not having resources, whilst the money is there but um, mismanaged, who has to take the blunt? The state has to do that. And I really think then the state needs to be proactive enough to make sure that hospitals are adequately uh, resourced. Well, are they being mismanaged? Is they that, are. Is that, is that, is are. that, a, is that an, an emphatic statement? It is. <coughs> I've got backings insofar as my research in this area because I'm very passionate about healthcare. Mm. And I really found that in most cases you find that the hospitals don't have medication. In some cases, even simple gloves. So those are some of the serious challenges that most doctors who work in uh, public hospitals tend to face on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, Steve, you want to answer that one? Well, it's difficult for me to I answer. I don't, yeah. I don't work in the hospital, so yeah. I, can't, I can't really comment yeah. in, in so far as the money's being mismanaged in the hospitals. I, I, I really don't know about that. Yeah. But what I can say is that I think that in the major state hospitals, um, I, I, I've, I've seen many people come through my office um, and when, you know, if we're talking about the baby cases, so to speak, as we are, I've seen many instances where, where women needed a cesarean and got a cesarean. So, you know, the, the, the facilities are there, in, you know, for, for cesarean operations to be performed. Mm. It's a question of recognizing that that needs to be performed. And that comes back in, to training. 
I mean, are the nurses adequately trained to recognize? Because there are a lot of cases where the nurses do nothing. And I'm talking personal experience now. Mm. And where the the nurses don't recognize that the child is now in in stress and and, and there's a danger to the child. So nothing, nothing gets done. A doctor doesn't get called. Nobody gets called. And the result is that this child is then born with cerebral palsy, which needn't have been the case. Yeah. The Department of Health has approached the Constitutional Court very recently, a month or so ago, and they said that they just can't afford to pay out these enormous amounts. What are they asking to do? What were they asking to do? And we were awaiting that judgment. Let's hear from you, Greg. I think your, your people were there in court. Um, yeah, well, we actually originally did the, calculated the lump sum that was due uh, to the plaintiff. In the How ma- much in was the matter, it, roughly? Uh, $23 million. Uh, a Cerebral palsy as well? Yes. Sure. Um, so the... Yeah, so the department approached the constitutional court and they, they basically raised um, three uh, main issues. The, the first one was re- really that um, the lump sums that are paying that they're paying are preventing them from providing basic healthcare services due to the strain placed on the annual budget. Because as we said previously, this money just comes out of the annual budget. Mm. Um, the second uh, the second thing that they raised was that they suggested an alternative to lump sum payments. So um, what what we have. Um, in our law as it stands is, is, is something called the once and for all rule. So basically you have one shot at uh, claiming damages and damages are paid in a lump sum. Um, what they what they suggested is that the, the department can pay service providers directly after 30 days after receiving quotes for services. So, for example, if a child um, needs, uh, uh, let's say, a wheelchair, then they have to get a, get a quote and then the department will purchase it and then... Uh, and, 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 and then that is, happens is there merit in this argument? Do, do, I mean, does it sound right that they should, that someone that's injured should wait for their money to be I, paid as and when? Personally, or? I don't think so. I mean, the, you know, often uh, having be, because you have a lump sum, it gives you, you know, if, if there's if there's an emergency, then you have access to um, to funds. Is a lot of this money that's paid in a lump sum not possibly squandered by the family, or is it? Very closely monitored, Stephen. Well, if I can answer that, uh, no, it's not squandered by the family because in nearly all the, well, certainly all the cases we do, and as far as I'm aware, nearly all cases, um, a trust will, uh, normally a trust will be formed. Mm. So that money will be, because it's not the parent's money, understand that. It's the money for the child for its future needs and care. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes that child is going to outlive that, those parents. Yes. So the money the money is paid in a trust is formed. The money is paid into the trust, and the trust manages the money. So anything that needs to be purchased for the child needs to be put to, or come through the trust, and the trustees need to authorize that purchase. Mm-hmm. So, for example, it, practically what will happen is we all know that the child is going to need ongoing nappies they got caregivers that look after them for example so the trust will then set up a mechanism whereby the caregivers are employed the parents will employ the caregivers and on a monthly basis the trust will probably pay the caregivers directly from the trust things like nappies and milk and all those sort of daily consumables that that the child is going to need normally what would happen is the trust would say would look sit down with the parents and work out how much they need per month to be able to buy all of those things and would then provide the parents with that amount of money to enable them to go and buy those provisions for the child because it would be ludicrous that every time that the you know mommy runs out of nappies she's got to go to the trustees and say i've just run out of nappies i need to buy another packet of nappies yeah, sure. great i yeah. think it's just a you know at the end of the day the liability is the same how, you know how you're going to go about paying it is 
is another story. But I mean, if you if you if you're going to pay it in installments or a lump sum, you you still have to show the same liability on your books. So, um, yeah, I don't uh, yeah I don't, I don't quite understand the arguments of paying out in installments. How did the court uh, view this one? Uh, I don't think the judges were too impressed, or the evidence presented wasn't great, was it? I think the judges gave the advocate for the state a tough yeah, time. Well, in the, re- the reporting in the media was certainly along the lines that um, they, they they grilled the uh, the Department of Health on uh, the fact that they didn't present um, e- evidence in, in terms of you know how this is affecting the budget and so on. Yeah, how would it affect the attorneys who are working on contingency? Would they only get paid on on what they get paid out, or how how would this be monitored? It's quite a tough one, isn't it, Stephen? Well, I think that if you're talking about contingency, I assume you're referring to the Contingency Fee Act, yeah. which 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 which, which uh, is is a is a legislated act. Mm. And I think what you've got to understand about that is there's a misconception about it. And I know there's been a lot in the media about Contingency Fee Acts lately. Um, an attorney who's acting on a contingency fee basis is entitled to charge well there, there are two ways of doing it either they can charge they charge their normal hourly rate which is what roughly well it depends on it depends on the attorney's experience i mean you'll find that um, attorneys who only have a few a few years experience are, are charging less than attorneys who have 10 or more years experience mm-hmm. um, but they charge their whatever their their particular hourly rate is and that and 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 they take the the case on 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 spec so to speak so that on a no win no fee basis mm. and what who, who finances people like greg the actuaries and and the and the specialist reports well, Who's the, the, for the attorneys are paying for you, that you pay we're for paying that. for that yes yeah. so you outlay millions at any one time depending on the number of cases you have yeah that's correct i, I think mean, people got to understand that it's not just plain sailing for you and you may not succeed in the end so you've, you you could lose all that money. You that take, you yeah, it's, you it's, take a, a risk. it's a risk that you take. And with mm. medical malpractice cases, you know, th- th- there's a lot more risk than, let's say, uh, uh, a case against the road accident fund where mm. somebody went to the back of somebody else. Mm. Um, but to come back to the contingency fee thing, there's two ways of doing it. So the one way is, as I was saying to you, you just charge your normal hourly rate and whatever it comes to on a no-win, no-fee basis. So there's no cap on that it's the amount of hours that you've done mm. the other way the other way in terms of the contingency fee act is that you're entitled to charge what they call a success fee and that success fee being double your normal hourly rate but then there's a cap on that to a maximum of 25 percent whichever is the lesser so for example if double your normal hourly rate comes to less than 25 percent of the award that's all you're entitled to charge mm. if double your normal hourly rate comes to more then you're entitled to only charge 25 percent mm. But that would exclude disbursements. On top of that, there would be the disbursements that that are incurred to run the case. Let's take some questions from the Legal Talk people, and we'll come back to what we were talking about. Lisa writes in. She says, I need some urgent advice. Fine, you've come to the right place. My friend's 12-year-old son died over a month ago due to natural causes. She puts that in inverted commas. But we've just found out that the results of the autopsy and it shows it's basically because of the doctor's negligence. She wants to sue but not sure how to start this process. As she gives some more information, she says initially he had headaches and then it developed into paralysis. She took him to a private GP who wrote a letter of referral and so on and so forth. She landed up at a government hospital and uh, I think the kid was maltreated in some way or another. And I don't want to go into the facts too much, but... Uh, she says the following, she cannot afford a lawyer that poor child would would be alive today had they done the scan or whatever they had to do. So what does she do? 
Well, look, in a case like that, let's let's accept there was negligence from from her story. Let's not debate whether there was or wasn't. We don't have enough information, but let's accept that there was negligence. When you're dealing with the death of a child, um, from a legal point of view of claiming, it's problematic. And the reason that it's problematic is that when you're dealing with the death of anybody, what arises from that is a dependence action. and In other words, an action for loss of support because generally somebody has been deprived of support. When a child dies, um, it's a harsh thing to, to say, but the, the reality is nobody has been deprived of any support when a child dies. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, if, it, if, it's, if it's my child that died, I would have been supporting that child. The child would not have been supporting me. So when, if I died, my child would have been deprived of the loss of support and there would be a claim. When a child dies, there isn't a claim because nobody, there isn't any loss of support. So there what may about be, heart, heartbreak? Is there, there no claim for that? There, there is, there, there is a possible claim for that, and and and, uh, but those those sort of claims are are not big. Um, it's ex- you, you'd still have to go through and prove the negligence in the first place, which is an expensive exercise to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, you 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 do get claims, um, and I actually bef- looked up. Some of some of the awards that have that have been made, um, in in term in terms of uh, claims for what we call emotional shock, mm-hmm. that would be the claim. It's it's really a general damages, if I can call it, kind of claim, for the suffering that the parent has has gone through um, at at lose at losing the child. And just to just just to give you an example, um, a, a fairly recent case, which was. It was a 2016 case. The damages awarded there, this this was, uh, in essence, I won't go into the facts, but it was a failure to take reasonable steps to prevent the stillbirth of a child. A child was born, it was a stillbirth, and it was found that if they had taken, if the hospital had taken reasonable, had taken reasonable steps, the child would not have been stillborn. There the court made an award of 100,000 rand. Um, so our courts are very conservative when it comes to making those sorts of awards. And I've got a whole long list here. Mm. And if I go through the list um, of old cases which have been updated, it's, it's, it's between 100, 150, 160,000 rand. Now, for, for the loss of a child. For the, for the loss of a child. Unless, Greg, you can prove that he owed you a duty of support or he was going to support you or how, what, yeah, what, yeah. I mean, parents do have a claim if the, if the child is working, but then uh, there's quite a strict indigency test um, mm. that has to be applied. So, um, yeah, and, the, and, you know, recent judgments have also been, uh, you know, fairly strict in, in, in the application of indigency. So, um, Assuming the parents cannot work, aren't working, they just can't get jobs or whatever, would they have a claim for loss of support? And the if child the, is, is stillborn. Well, you know, you've got no, to wait 18 years. No, there wouldn't be. There wouldn't be. You know, we, we can't yeah. claim for what would have happened or could have happened. The law yeah. looks at the facts of what did happen, mm. and the fact that that child had an earning potential yeah. if it was born alive. Yeah. That 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 is not what our law looks at. Our, yeah. our law simply says the child was not born alive. Mm. There's another question here. Well, I think Sherelle Kiston, she answers in some way. <clears throat> she said, contact the HPCSA, which is the Health Professions Council. Uh, it's free up to a point where they advise you whether you have a case to go to court with. Very good attorneys on their panel. Gents, is this where people should go, Steve? Um, well, I think what listeners have to understand is that if you're going to go to the Health Professions Council and lay a complaint against a the Health Professions Council, first of all, is the body, the umbrella body under which all the healthcare professionals fall. So they all belong to that body, the same as attorneys belong 
to the law society, the various mm. law societies. And if you're going to go the way of complaining to the Health Professions Council, they will they will look at it and they will decide whether or not to uh, take any action once once against the particular healthcare professional once they've looked at it. But it's not a civil claim. They don't have the power to to make civil awards. Mm. So all that they can do is they can say, yes, we believe that that healthcare professional didn't do what he should have done, mm. um, and therefore they can slap him with a fine. If it's more severe than that, they they can suspend him. And if it's abs- you know, if it's if, if the, the ultimate sanction would 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 be to uh, remove his name from the roll. Um, I think she's better off going to an attorney. He can report the doctor if he wants to, or not. Um. He, look, the, the the attorney can, but I my, I I believe that uh, if somebody if if a member of the public wants to report them to the health professions council, my own belief is that they should be the ones to do that. I don't I don't encourage people to report healthcare professionals who've made an error to to the to the to the health professions council. Okay. Often, you know, you've got to remember that often when when these cases come up of negligence, it may be a doctor, let's say he's a maybe a well known doctor who's been practicing in the field for donkey's years mm. and we're all fallible and he made a mistake. Mm. It wasn't a malicious mistake, it was it was there was no intent behind the mistake. Um so you know it's up to the individual as to as as to how they feel about it and whether they want to to, to report their doctor because that the health professions council has the power to sanction the doctor ultimately but if if somebody has been wronged and they they're looking for money in in order to facilitate the the, the future needs of that child or themselves or whoever whoever's suffered the harm then they're going to have to go through the court system they're going to have to issue a summons against that healthcare professional um claiming an amount of money uh, you're not going to get that from the health professions council. I, I think there's all the answers that were given to this very woman who said, "What do I do f- about my son?" A lot of people said, "Go to the law society; they can get you a pro bono lawyer." And then people answered and said, "Don't talk rubbish. Pro bono is something else. Maybe just clear all this up for, uh, once and for all." Where do you go if, God forbid, uh, there's been medical negligence? Do you go straight to an attorney. What do you do? Well. Most most the attorneys that practice medical negligence law will take a case on on contingency, mm. so that means that you don't need to have money, you don't need to be a person of means in order to have a case. If you have a case, uh, and the case and the case warrants it, and the attorney that you go to feels that the case warrants it, they will take it on. Um, but you must remember that they are also putting going to be putting a substantial amount of their own money into the into the case. So you have to. You have to weigh it up when you when you when you when you're looking at a case, um, and if you if you're looking at a case and it's going to cost you five hundred thousand rand to prosecute the case, and and you're only going to get a hundred th- and it's only worth a hundred thousand rand, I mean if I said to you as a business deal put in five hundred thousand rand for which you'll get a return of a hundred thousand rand, you're not going to do that. No. So, I think that um, it's not in every case where there may be a case that. That people should be claiming in my that's in my view. I've I've had many many people phone me up, and I've often told people that I believe that there is a case, but I don't. I'm not certain that it's financially viable for them to prosecute that case. Mm. And most times, people turn around and say, "Thank you very much for that. You know, for 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 your information, and thanks for talking to me." They got a better understanding now, and and they and and they decide not to prosecute a case. 
Um, but where, where there, there's some cases that should be prosecuted and we're talking about the baby cases. Obviously those are cases in my view that should be prosecuted because these kids are going to require lifelong care. Yeah, Greg, uh, you are mandated in 99% of the cases by attorneys that are handling these matters. And you are asked to do the financial calculations for them. That's correct. Well, we, how, do, how do you go about that? Well, we, we briefed generally, uh, well, I mean, we've, we've been briefed by the department, we've been briefed by attorneys that represent the MPS, and we've also been briefed by our plaintiff firm. So we, you know, we, 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 we pretty much get briefed by all, all you know, defendants and plaintiffs. Um, look, so the actuary's involvement basically in these matters is the, there's, um, there's, there's two heads of damages where we're involved. So the one is for future loss of, well, past and future loss of earnings. And then, uh, for, and then calculating the capitalized value of future medical expenses. Mm-hmm. So, um, there's normally, just, just to give you some background, there's normally about, uh, well, there's five heads of damages generally that, that one claims in, in medical negligence matters. Past medical expenses, which are normally just proved, um, easily, easy to prove. Mm-hmm. Um, future medical expenses are there. You've got to rely on, um, a, a number of experts who give opinions on what the, um, future, uh, care of the child will involve. So, um, in, in, in cerebral palsy matters, this often involves, um, you know, well, the biggest expense generally is caregiving. So the, you know, the, the more severe the case, generally there's uh, a requirement for sort of 24 hour care and uh, that comes at, at a substantial cost. Um, and then there's a, a claim for past loss of income that wouldn't apply in a, in a, in a, in a child's uh, case. So there, would ju- there would just be a claim for future loss of income. And then there's general damages, which is basically losses that can't be quantified, such as pain and suffering. So, um, no, those are the five broad categories. Then actuaries are normally briefed in uh, calculating the capitalized value of future medical expenses and then the capitalized value of um, future loss of income. So Obviously, mean, the, the courts rely on this. This is what they base yeah, well, their this, judgments on. Uh, generally, yes. So, I mean, they don't have to adhere to what mm. the actuary calculates. I mean, there, there, there are judgments where, um, you know, they can depart. But but um, my experience in, 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 well, virtually every single uh, cerebral palsy matter that I've been involved in, um, it's, they've always relied on the on the actuarial calculations at the end of the day. So, I have a report here, Greg. It comes uh, off uh, the Soweto, uh, no, the Citizen. I'm not quite sure of the date. It says the Gauteng MEC Health MEC has agreed to pay over 29.6 million to compensate a Soweto family for the gross negligence of state hospital staff, which resulted in their little girl. Uh, becoming quadriplegic cerebral palsy. Were you involved in that matter? I was, yes. Yeah. I, I mean, is the, that's a staggering payout, isn't it? No. Twenty nine million. Yes, it is. Is, is that one of the biggest, or what? What yeah, kind of that, figures that, are? That yeah. is one of the biggest that I that I'm aware of. I think um, I know. I think Jack Bloom asked the question of, of the of the Department of Health what the five biggest payouts were, were in cerebral palsy matters, and as far as I know, the biggest one is thirty six million. Uh, followed by 33 million, and then I think this one was the third, the third biggest, uh, 29.6 million. But the the main driver, and Stephen will, will be able to back me up on it, of of why these claims get so large, because people look at the amount and it, it's staggering, and I think, well, how, how can it, are you sure you've calculated this correctly? But the the cost of care is substantial. So, um, you know, caregivers, uh, full time care, caregiving can be twenty five thousand a month, for example. Do you remember the negligence aspect of this particular case? What what happened there? I don't don't oh, remember. The, don't yeah, we, yeah. No, we we don't we we, yeah, we not we don't often see the negligence. Uh, so we you know we normally just get to the quantum stage once negligence has been sorted out. So we don't always get full details of every every single matter that comes across our desk. Yeah, Stephen. Yeah. Can, can I can I just add that when you see these amounts that get paid out. 
one of the big issues, especially when it comes to sort of cerebral palsy kids, is life expectancy. Mm. So when, when one instructs somebody like Greg to, to, to quantify a matter, mm. one would instruct him that the life expectancy of this child is 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. So the longer the life expectancy of the child, the greater the award is going to be because it's, for the, it's the greater the length of time that the child is going to obviously need all of this care. Um, and in cerebral palsy cases in particular, there's a very varied life expectancy. And, and, and unfortunately, it is a bit of a thumb suck. It's based on statistics. Um, there are various studies that have been done overseas. So, so if a child is lying there and cannot roll over or cannot move at all, and they're sort of really just lying and staring at the ceiling, their life expectancy is going to be a lot less than a child who is able to walk or be dragging his one leg behind him, for example. Mm. Um, you know, the difference between those two, may the one may have a life expectancy of 20 years and the other may have a life expectancy of 50 or 60 years. And that's going to make a vast difference to what the quantification of the claim will ultimately be. I think one of the, the problems as well is just the, um, the application of life expectancy to an individual. So you can never predict how long one person is going to live. Um, you know, and whereas for, uh, you, you could do that for a, a large group of individuals. So in statistics, you talk about the law of uh, large numbers. So if you've got a, 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 a large group of similar individuals, then you can fairly accurately predict, um, what the, you know, what the, li- av- the life expectancy is. So the, but that's an average life expectancy. Now to go and what happens in these matters, you've got to go and apply that average to an individual. So, you know, one of the, com- one, of, well, one of the concerns of the department as well is that, um, you know, you know, let's say the li- life expectancy is determined at another 25 years, which is the average, but then you could be faced with a situation where um, the child dies in three years' time. Now you've paid out 20, 20 million rand or so, and, uh, you know, they, 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 they're arguing that, um, that, you know, that money, uh, you know, should come back to the state. Yeah, what, what does happen to the money? Nothing. Does it stay with the parents? Well, in terms of our current law, the, yeah. the once and for all rule, as Greg has already alluded to, applies. Which means once once there's been a judgment, then that judgment needs to be satisfied. And if the child dies three weeks later, then yeah, then the the, the money would then go to that child's heirs. It doesn't get paid at, at the present moment. Doesn't get paid back to the state. Mm. That's one of the things that the state it's is. It's actually advocating. a good point. It's a, it's a very good point. It's if something does happen to the child, the parents have walked out with thirty million or whatever it may be. It's one of the arguments that I think yeah. it was the Eastern Cape or the Western Cape Department of Health raised in the constitutional court because they, mm. they they had data on on I think it was a rough I, can't, I think it was about forty five um, cases where um, they found that a, a few had died before the um, you know before the monies had even been paid. So uh, you know again it, it it's got to be. You know, as Stephen said, you know, the, the the whole thing is to determine the life expectancy, and we we often have to rely on. Uh, well, we we can only rely on international studies for that purpose. So there's um, there's a, a California database of of cerebral palsy uh, matters where, and, and and that's often used as the, you know, that w- with an adjustment determines what the life expectancy is in South Africa. So one of the things the the Department of Health should be doing is 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 constructing a a, a database of um, these matters and and tracking them over time so that mm. they can get a get their own uh, handle on um, life expectancy because at the moment there's just no feedback loop into the system what happens to a medical practitioner or a nurse who's grossly negligent mm. a derelict uh, in, in in the duty 
Do they get sanctioned? I mean, do they get fired or are they still there? What happens to these people? Do well, you know? that yeah. would be dependent upon the institution they work for. In the case of a medical practitioner, as we discussed earlier on, um, that would be a question of whether that medical practitioner is then, you know, reported to the health professions council. Mm-hmm. And if they find him, him to or her to be grossly negligent, yeah. um, then they are, they have the power to sanction that person. As I say, the uh, de- the sanction would depend on on, on what the uh, negligence involved or the gross negligence involved. Insofar as the nursing is concerned, there is the nursing council of South Africa, and very much the same thing applies. Mm. There. The hospital, well, an individual could report a nurse as well, but very often it's the hospitals that uh, will will refer the matter to the nursing council, who will also make you know make an adjudication as to that particular nurse's performance. Stephen, lastly, are we becoming a bit of a litigious society like the Americans? I mean, are, are, is the dentist scared to treat your tooth because? If he hurts you, you've got a claim against him. Is that what's happening today? Are there a lot of, I don't include you in this one, but there are a lot of attorneys that handled uh, road accident fund matters that are moving away from that because the law's changing there and they're looking for new sources of income. It could be medical malpractice. Well, I think that medical malpractice is a growing concern worldwide. It's not only in this country. If, if, if one looks at uh, various articles which I've read, mm. um, the United States, which is, as you say, is a very litigious society, there, there are grave concerns about the, the growing number of medical malpractice claims there and, and Canada and so forth. And, uh, you know, you can point all over the world, the medical malpractice there. Uh, is, is, is growing for whatever particular reason. And I don't think, I mean, when you say the demise of the road accident fund, well, it hasn't demised yet. The law hasn't yet changed. So maybe practitioners are, are looking at other avenues of, of practice, uh, which they haven't previously looked at. And that may, and that may be a reason for the increase in, in, you know, and, and there's also been so much increase in the awareness of medical malpractice. You know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was sort of a case of, you can't sue a doctor. All doctors stick together, so there's no point in suing a doctor. I think that that thinking that's, has yeah, changed. changed. Yeah. That's the voice of Stephen Flowers. Are you still advertising all over? I well, remember your ads uh, just flow thick and fast. Well, not, not on Cliff Central, though. I think we need you here. Not, 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 not all over, but we yeah. do still advertise. Yeah. Many thanks. Stephen Flowers, uh, your firm is? Munro Flowers and Fermark Attorneys. In Rosebank, Johannesburg. Cool. They're one of the leading... Uh, medical malpractice legal firms. And then we also have, uh, you, you haven't given the lot of numbers out, or you're not giving them. <laughs> not <laughs> scared not, to be sued. Not, not this week. <laughs> <laughs> you could get sued if you've got pref- uh, professional indemnity insurance. I actually sure do, but do. I'm not yeah. getting out a lot of numbers. Okay, well, uh, privately, uh, for a few million, uh, you can give out the lot of numbers. We'll calculate it for people. Many thanks to you, Greg, Greg Whitaker of Algorithm Consultants. <clears throat> it's been a great show, Lions. It was great. Very interesting, a bit scary. It's very, I mean, law, medical, it's always scary. Cool. Until next week, uh, we want to thank you very much for listening, and uh, we'll be back with something very exciting next week. See you then. Please note that the views expressed and the advice provided in this show are for general advice and entertainment purposes only. Nothing stated should be treated as a substitute for your own independent legal advice based on your own specific facts and objectives. Therefore, the presenter and CliffCentral.com accept no liability of any nature whatsoever, either expressed or implied. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com.
Representing the Attorney's Fidelity Fund and the Attorney's Insurance Indemnity Fund on cliffcentral.com. Your champions in the legal profession. Sanbunani, I'm Gary Hertzberg, and this is the Laws of Life on cliffcentral.com. Alongside me today, Lionel Makokutlela. Welcome, Lions. Dumela, Gary, and Dumela to our podcasters. Yep. Lions, as you know, in the last few podcasts, uh, we've been talking about how many lawyers have in recent times made off with money that have been held in trust on behalf of clients. Yes. Uh, obviously, these lawyers didn't start out crooked mm-hmm. because for a lawyer to practice, he has to have a Fidelity Fund certificate. Wow. So uh, joining us today in studio is uh, Simtandile Manyamani. She's the Practitioner Support Manager of the Attorney's Fidelity Fund. A very warm welcome to you. Thank you, Kerry, and good afternoon. Let's talk about your position as Practitioner Support Manager at Attorney's Fidelity Fund. What actually does that entail? It entails quite a number of things. One of the things that we do is really to support the practitioners, as the name suggests. How we support them is that we would provide training where it's required. We issue articles through Derebus, which is a journal that the attorneys use in South Africa. We also support the new practitioners who have just opened new firms, where we go and see if they know how to prepare their accounting records, if they know how to maintain their trust and, 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 and everything that relates to trust funds. So that's the first leg that we do. And then we provide inspections as well, which is required by the rules. After four months of being of opening the firm, we get the first inspection, which is done within the first six months. So we provide quite a number of support initiatives that we that 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 are required out there. We currently, for instance, are writing up a risk management module for the lead, where we actually be talking to the practitioners on how to maintain their risks in their firms, because we've seen that some, that some of them don't know how to do risk assessment. So we're starting to support them to say this is how you do. Things. Being a lawyer, <clears throat> excuse me, being a lawyer myself and being a very proud member of the Law Society, I, I've, I, I've, I can say personally, we really value what you do and you offer all kinds of assistance to us attorneys. So many thanks to you and uh, keep the good work up. Thank uh, the, you. Uh, let's talk about what a Fidelity Fund certificate is and how a lawyer goes about getting one. A Fidelity Fund Certificate is a certificate that actually entitles a lawyer to practice. What it means is that if you have your own practice, you are a director in an incorporated firm, a partner in a partnership, or a sole practitioner in, in a sole uh, proprietor, you actually need to have the certificate. And this certificate that is issued is issued by the Law Society. It runs for the period from the 1st of January to 31 December. However, should you be a new practitioner that opened somewhere in the year, you can apply at, at, at a point when you open the firm, but the certificate that's issued is only valid up to the 31st of December. How you apply really is that in the past, prior to the issuance of the 2016 ones, the lawyers would complete a form, an application form, and send it to the Law Society. And this was a manual intervention. They would send it to the Law Society. The Law Society would then capture the form onto the system and issue the certificate manually to the lawyer. In 2015, the Attorney's Fidelity Fund actually appointed a service provider 
who came up with an online application system, which is um, uh, something that can be used by all the lawyers. The beauty about the system is that you don't have to have a laptop. You don't have to have a desktop. You can actually access the system even from your smartphone, from your tablet, from your iPad, from anywhere. You don't have to be in the office to do the application. So all you do is that you log in and um, you get pr- uh, your, your credentials, your login credentials provided to you when you Login for the first time, there's a section where you're going to put in your ID number and you also put in the email address. You submit it, the system will then send you your login credentials. It is therefore important that as a lawyer, you make sure that the law society always has your up-to-date contact details because if that email address is incorrect, then you will not be able to get it. So you need to make sure that they've got the one that you're using so that it can be sent to that. And then you can log in using those credentials that you receive from the system. Lance, uh, we may have answered the question. I know you wanted to ask uh, how to apply for certainly for the certificate. Yeah, but uh, since that yes. has been answered, yeah. uh, do does Fidelity uh, Fund actually operate nationally within South Africa, or is it only based in Pretoria? We are based in Pretoria. Our head office is in Cape Town, and we have an office where we're operating from. It's an office. It's a branch, and we have another branch in Peter Maritzburg, which is a relatively small branch. Uh, but our head office, like I've mentioned, is in Cape Town. We do provide services nationally, although we don't have national presence in terms of uh, the buildings, in terms of location. You don't have people sitting everywhere in the country, but we service everyone in the country. Yeah, I'm sure us lawyers know how to use the email and phones and the rest, so as long as we've got the major centers uh, caters to all of us. Yeah, I think the question that uh, Lionel and I want to ask you is, what actually are the requirements to meet before a certificate is actually issued to an attorney? There are two major requirements that we currently look for. One, we look for um, an approved audit for the firm. I don't want to say that we're looking for an unqualified audit because there are instances where initially the audit would be qualified by an auditor for whatever reason. Then the law society would send it back for whatever the qualification was to be addressed and then it becomes unqualified. So you will find that most probably in the system it still reflects as qualified. That to us is not important. What's important is whether the law society has approved the audit report. So if the approval is there, you will still be considered to get your certificate. The second thing that we look for is the practice management training. This is a compulsory training that attorneys who started practicing for the first time for their own account after the 14th of August 2009 must complete and is offered by the LEAD, which is the the Legal Education and uh, Development Unit of the Law Society of the Law Society of South Africa. So if you started practicing for the first time after the 14th of August 2009, you must do that uh, training unless the Law Society, for whatever reason, actually exempts you from doing it. But that is at the discretion of the Law Society. Yes. So you need to meet those two requirements. And if we look at the issue of the audit report, if, for instance, you are a practitioner who is a director or a partner in more than just one firm, all the firms that you are associated with should have approved audits. If any one of the firms that you are associated with doesn't have an approved audit, then it will actually lead to the withholding of the certificates for the other firms that you are linked with. Because remember, we issue the certificate to an individual, not to a firm. So for an individual to hold the certificate, you should be in good standing in all the firms that you are actually linked to.
I think there's one one other thing that you've got to be up to date with your subscriptions. Well, the, the Law Society, like I indicated, is the one that issues the certificate. Mm. So if you are not up to date with your SERPs or your contributions with the Law Society, yeah. they do, they can withhold the issuance of the certificate, even if you do meet the other two requirements. May I just take a practical example? A client walks into a lawyer's office, a prospective mm-hmm. client. He doesn't know whether the lawyer has a fidelity fund certificate or not. Mm-hmm. There is no way of demonstrating that, is there? And, and I don't think it, it is incumbent upon a prospective client to phone the law society and say, is that, is, has that lawyer a fidelity fund certificate? I guess well, there's, it's quite there's, a tricky one. That there's it? absolutely nothing wrong with the public member if they know that the the, the, the practitioner should be holding a certificate. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with them asking from the law society and verifying. Yeah. In fact, the intention is that in going into the future, the public member should be in a position to log into a, a website mm-hmm. and see if the attorney that they are approaching does hold one. Excellent. So yeah. there is something like that that is going to come into the future. Yeah. But at the moment, not all attorneys display their certificates on the walls but it is ideal that they do because for a member for of the public who knows that there should be a certificate it would be a plus to see that certificate but the beauty when when we when we get to the time when the member of the public can verify they can actually even scan that certificate and see if indeed it's a valid certificate or if it's a forged certificate yeah you know what you're saying is so accurate because uh, i had a client the other day who came to see me his attorney had closed his doors and mm-hmm. uh, he couldn't get hold of him. The, the, he, the, the attorney didn't answer his calls or anything. I know this is slightly off point. Mm. So he came to me and I had to phone the Law Society for him. Mm. And I had to ask them, has this lawyer closed down or is he in bad standing or what is the position? Mm. As you rightly say, I think the public should be able to access that mm. yes. themselves directly. So they know whether the, whether the attorney is up to date or not or has a certificate or not. Certainly. That's something is, that we're working towards. What is the effect, if I may ask, as a last question, of uh, an att- on, on the attorney's part if he doesn't have an up-to-date fidelity fund certificate? What's the effect on him and his practice? The effect on the attorney is that as the, as the actor right, um, correctly points out or explicitly points out, it, it first of all says you should hold a certificate for you to practice. Mm. But it also says in a case where you, where you do practice and you are not in possession of the certificate when you should, you cannot be charging fees. Mm. So effectively what it translates to is that if you don't have the certificate and and you are continuing to provide a service, you should be providing it free of charge because you're not entitled to a fee or award or disbursement or anything. So it is critical that an attorney, for them to practice, they must always have a valid certificate. If the public have any queries, they don't find the attorney's fidelity fund, they find the Law Society Direct. You found the Law Society. They should come through to you. Well, the first point of call is the Law Society. They are the regulators. They are the ones who issue the certificate. The Attorney's Fidelity Fund doesn't. All the Attorney's Fidelity Fund did was to introduce an online system to facilitate the application. But it is still the Secretary of the Law Society who issues the certificate to the practitioners. There's a wealth of information on your website that the public can look at, please. And a lot of attorneys should have a look at it as well. Give it to us. I'm happy you said that. Uh, a lot of 
pattern is certainly have to look at it. Um, for instance, this year we closed on the 31st of March to provide assistance. The fund does provide telephonic assistance, usually in the period between October of a year up to around March of the following year. Because it's a peak period for issuance of certificates, we understand that the law societies cannot handle all the calls. So we do appoint people temporarily to provide the service. And we do indicate on our, on our website when we are going to provide the service and what the contact details of the people who can be contacted are. And once we have closed, we also indicate, unfortunately, some people don't read on our website <laughs> because they still continue to phone, even post the date What's when wrong we... What's with us We don't... And, and you actually expect attorneys to, to read because all they deal with really is text, but some of them don't. So they still continue to phone. In a case where we receive a phone call where a person requires assistance or maybe they have not been assisted by the law society, they couldn't get through for whatever reason, we do provide the service. But your first point of call is the law society. Many thanks. That's the voice of Sim Tandila Mayamani. She's the practitioner support manager of the Attorney's Fidelity Fund. Thank you for taking time to be with us. A great bit of information. We'll talk to you again. Thanks, Gary. Law, like you've never heard it before. The Laws of Life with Gary Hertzberg on cliffcentral.com. This is cliffcentral.com.